Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and throw the business into turmoil. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigation Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Beginning in November 2012, with the publication of a resource guide to the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is commonly referred to as the FCPA Resource Guide, the Department of Justice and the SEC have regularly been publishing useful and informative guidance on the elements of effective compliance programs and the Department and the Commission's expectations for, the, for compliance programs. Following the publication of the FCPA Resource Guide, the DOJ Fraud Section published another important document in February 2017 entitled Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. It's been updated twice since then in 2019 and again in 2020. The FCPA Resource Guide was also updated in 2020. These two documents are the primary desk references used by federal prosecutors to examine whether a company they're investigating has an effective compliance program. Because of that, it's incumbent upon board members and C-suite executives to be familiar with these documents, understand what's expected of them, and to hold themselves and others accountable, ensuring the company has properly considered the risks of their unique business operations and has tailored a robust compliance program based on a nuanced understanding of the risks identified. I'm joined today by two legal experts on corporate compliance, Lynn Niels and Joe Perry of Baker Botts. Lynn is a partner in the White Collar Defense and Corporate Investigations Practice Group at Baker Botts, where her practice focuses on representing clients and individuals on matters related to white collar criminal defense, internal investigations, regulatory enforcement, corporate compliance, and complex civil litigation. She has extensive prosecutorial, corporate, and private practice experience that spans more than 25 years, has counseled clients in large-scale federal criminal investigations, as well as advised clients on the FCPA and other regulatory matters involving the SEC, CFTC, and other federal, state, and foreign regulators. Lynn served as an AUSA in both the Southern District of New York and the District of New Jersey, and for many years was chief of the Complex Fraud Major Crimes Unit in the Southern District. She has worked on a wide variety of complex white-collar cases in the government as a prosecutor and as defense counsel, including FCPA, securities fraud, accounting fraud, bank fraud, Bank Secrecy Act, tax fraud, wire fraud, money laundering, healthcare fraud, insurance fraud, environmental violations, sanctions, and obstruction of justice matters. Lynn also served as senior counsel at Johnson & Johnson, where she was responsible for handling a large caseload of criminal and civil matters. Joe Perry is special counsel at BakerBots, where he focuses on representing companies and individuals in white-collar criminal defense, regulatory enforcement, internal investigations, and complex civil matters. He counsels clients in large-scale federal and state criminal investigations, as well as advises clients on FCPA and other regulatory matters involving the SEC, CFTC, federal and state regulators. Prior to joining Baker Botts, Joe clerked for the Honorable Carmen Beauchamp Separic, Senior Associate Judge of the New York State Court of Appeals. Joe began his legal career as an Assistant District Attorney in the New York County DA's office. Well, welcome, Lynn and Joe, and thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks so much for having us, Scott. Yeah, we're happy to be here. So, tone at the top is an expression often used to describe the ethical tone set by an organization's leadership team when it comes to their approach to compliance. 
When the evaluation of corporate compliance programs guidance was first released in 2017, one notable change was the use of the term conduct at the top, which seemed to reinforce the department's increased emphasis on holding individuals accountable. Those individuals include executives and board members who preside over organizations that run afoul of the FCPA and other statutes. The most recent evaluation of corporate compliance program document opens with three fundamental questions. Is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? Is it being applied earnestly and in good faith? In other words, is the program adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively? And third, does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? The question number two seems to be invoking corporate stewardship and oversight. What's the government driving at with question number two when it comes to its expectations of company leadership and the board? I think they are invoking corporate stewardship and oversight. So this guidance, it was updated in June of 2020. It's really meant to assist prosecutors in making kind of decisions as to whether and to what extent the corporation's compliance program was effective at the time of the offense and really kind of help them determine, you know, what, if any, penalty should be assessed against the company for a compliance failure. The guidance directs, you know, prosecutors to look at a number of things. You know, one thing that they're looking at is the commitment by senior and middle management. And the guidance actually directs prosecutors to look at the company's top leaders. So the board of directors and executives, what tone are they setting for the rest of the company? It's interesting because it really instructs the prosecutors to analyze, well, what compliance expertise has been available on the board of directors? Have the board of directors held executive or private sessions with the compliance and the control function? So not just the compliance function, but also internal audit, for example. You know, what types of information has the board of directors and senior management examined in their exercise of oversight in the area in which the misconduct occurred? So there is a, you know, a focus by the Department of Justice and federal prosecutors around the country. Of, you know, what was the involvement of executives, management and the board of directors? It's a big part of, you know, the evaluation of a compliance program. Thanks, Lynn. Risk assessment is a really important underpinning of any compliance program. And yet some organizations don't fully understand the interrelationship between risk assessment and the design of a compliance program and, and the controls underlying it. What are some strategies that compliance officers and in-house counsel should use to illustrate that interrelationship and better educate the board and the leadership team on the importance of having a comprehensive understanding of the risks that the organization may encounter? Thanks, Scott. You know, I think finding risk and designing a compliance program, in my view, just go hand in hand. A robust compliance program has to be tethered to the unique risks of your company. And of course, risks vary by industry. The regulatory risks of financial institution cases are different than other industries like tech or pharmaceutical. So, you know, companies need to really tether and link the risks associated with their particular industry and design around those unique risks. You have to look at it also from the perspective of a multinational company that engages in business abroad versus a company that does just work domestically. A compliance program has to take into account, you know, those differences as well. You know, I would say C-suite executives and leadership at companies really need to think through the industry that they work in and then design a compliance program that relates directly to the industry that they work in. And I think I would add to that, you know, and that's the expectation of DOJ in terms of evaluating a compliance program, right? That whatever compliance program you have, 
actually meets the risks that the company's actually facing. It's, you know, hard because there's obviously a remote compliance standpoint, the compliance organization, you know, it's not a profit, you know, making part of a company, but it's really kind of crucial that the compliance organization is actually you know, well-resourced and funded and actually meets the risks that the company is facing in whatever area it functions. So, you know, if it's international in terms of the, you know, from an FCPA standpoint, for example. I think you guys both make some excellent points. It's always interesting, you know, when you're having conversations with executives and you know, assessing the current state of ethics and compliance program or any bribery and corruption program and, and how sometimes that understanding of the risks that have been or should have been factored into the sort of the blueprint that is their program, sometimes they get a little disambiguated and there's a lack of, of understanding of some pretty fundamental concepts. It kind of doesn't bode well, you know, especially if that conversation is taking place with maybe someone else across the table other than me. Exactly. Once you get, you know, you're negotiating with the Department of Justice, if you had a compliance failure and there's been an investigation, you want to be armed with as many examples as you can of how your compliance program is actually was meeting the risks. No compliance program is foolproof, right? There's always going to be issues that kind of come up. Um, you just have to be in a position to be able to defend your, your compliance program that it really intended to do all the risks. There was a good faith effort. Even if there was a failure, it doesn't mean that you had an ineffective compliance program. That's the position you want to be in you know, if you ever find yourself you know, on the other side of the table, you know, a DOJ prosecutor or an SEC lawyer. So arguably, the FCPA resource guide's most important content is the section that includes what they term the hallmarks of effective compliance program. And although the hallmarks are derived from the federal sentencing guidelines, elements of uh, effective compliance programs, the Thompson memo, the McNulty memo, the Phillip factors, and other authoritative guidance that has come forth from the department, it brought these 10 compliance program elements into renewed focus. And they are commitment from senior management and a clearly articulated policy against corruption code of conduct and compliance policies and procedures, oversight, autonomy, and resources, risk assessment, training and continuing advice, incentives and disciplinary measures, third-party due diligence and payments, confidential reporting and internal investigation, continuous improvement and periodic testing and review, and uh, lastly, mergers and acquisitions, which includes both pre-acquisition due diligence and post-acquisition integration. That's a lot to consider. So what should boards be doing to acquaint themselves with the hallmarks and then to make sure that the company is using the FCPA resource guide in the way that it was intended, as well as the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, documents, and other authoritative guidance as a blueprint for their program? What we can take from this various guidances from the Department of Justice is that you know, there's an expectation that board is going to be, you know, active in this space. There's an expectation that board understands, has some knowledge of the relevant laws and regulations that apply to their business, that they have the resources available to them to understand them and the extent of them. So either other board members who were on the board that have, you know, experience in those areas, whether they were our lawyers or folks that are actually experienced and understand the issues that are facing the company from a compliance standpoint. But, you know, it could be in-house counsel or compliance folks that are briefing the board on these various requirements of a compliance program or outside counsel, for example, somebody like me. I mean, I, I have actually briefed boards about the expectations in terms of the compliance program. The board really does need to have an understanding also of the compliance program itself. What does it look like? 
you know, having regular reports from the chief compliance officer or the general counsel, if you don't have a chief compliance officer about the compliance program, including its monitoring of the compliance program. I think that's very important for board members to do. So the key message in this guidance is that monitoring is important. So making sure the program is actually working and meeting the risks, you know, facing the company. So having those regular reports to the board or some committee of the board is actually kind of an important thing from a compliance standpoint. I think boards do a pretty good job of understanding, they have an understanding that they have this oversight function, right? That they're responsible for making sure compliance programs that have been implemented and designed are actually being followed through. But sometimes I think boards themselves don't necessarily think about the training that they need themselves to perform that oversight function. So they need training too. And it could just happen at regular intervals in meetings or the subcommittees, audit committee meetings to just make sure that they're equipped to perform their oversight role. Thanks, Joe. So there have been a number of shareholder suits against board members regarding compliance oversight failures. Can you walk us through a couple of those cases and the implications for current and future board members for future shareholder suits? I think, you know, this is a real important question. I mean, it's something that's kind of surfaced in the law in the last couple of years. You know, at least in the Delaware law context, we've seen this where there's like the seminal Delaware law case, the Caremark case, which basically stands for the proposition that board members have to act in good faith. And that case came out in the 90s and shareholder suits that have ensued following that Caremark case. It's been really difficult to be able to plead out that board members have acted in bad faith. And We've seen over the last, you know, 20 years, a lot of these cases not surviving the motion to dismiss stage. It's changed a little bit recently. In the last couple of years, there's this case called Marshan v. Barnhill, case decided in 2019 by the Delaware Supreme Court. And that case involved a company, Bluebell Creameries, an ice cream manufacturer. And there was a listeria outbreak in the factory, which caused a recall of all their products back in 2015. And as a result, a shareholder complaint was filed against the company, the senior executives, as well as the board of director, alleging violations of duty of care, duty of loyalty, specifically as to the board, their failure to engage in a good faith oversight of the company. And the lower courts had dismissed the case, which had been typical of a lot of the other cases we've seen in, in this space. But no, they reversed. And they, they said that the, the complaint had adequate pleadings, kind of focused on the fact that there was allegations that the board had no committee overseeing food safety and no process to address you know, safety issues that were specific to this industry. So the complaint was reinstated. And we've seen this you know, trickle in in some other cases in the lower Delaware courts now following this 2019 decision. So I don't know if it's a sea change in the law. You know, the Caremark standard hasn't been changed. I just think there's now a little bit heightened scrutiny as to what the board responsibilities are and their oversight function. And that if there's allegations that support that they acted in bad faith, these cases could go forward. And I would add to that, it's not even just in, in the shareholder litigation context. I mean, you've got to also be worried about inquiries by Department of Justice or federal prosecutors in terms of them querying 
you know, what did the board know and when? There's a big guidance that's been given to prosecutors over the years that said, you know, don't just look at the potentially pursuing a case against the company itself, but also you need to look at reactions of individuals at the company. So it's not just management asking questions about the activities of the board. What did the board members know and when? What, if anything, did they do once they knew of a, a potential compliance failure? So it's a lot harder to bring an action as a prosecutor against a, a board member. But it calls into question why anyone would want to be on the board. So if we're talking about FCPA compliance, there are certain fundamental concepts that both boards and the leadership team really have to understand in order to be able to effectively support the company's compliance efforts. Can you walk us through what is considered to be like the top five things that boards and senior leadership should know about the FCPA in order to be effective in their oversight? Obviously, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, that's the FCPA, right? I mean, and it's a, it's a law that actually prohibits the bribery or giving anything of value to a foreign government official for the purposes of obtaining or retaining business, right? You know, one of the things I think a lot of people don't understand who are not practitioners or involved in, in FCPA compliance on a day to day basis is like how broad the term foreign official is. A foreign official isn't just, you know, somebody that's in the legislature in a foreign government. It's also could be somebody who works for a state-owned entity, for example. It could be, you know, a public health system, you know, out in a foreign country, for example, doctors. For a long time, I think it wasn't so clear to um, a lot of people that a doctor that works in a country where there's a public health system is considered a, a foreign government official under the FCPA. So for that got a lot of pharmaceutical and medical device companies in hot water when they were paying expenses, for example, for of doctors to go to congresses and stay in very expensive, you know, resorts and entering into contracts with them where they they were, you know, getting paid lots of money. Um, so the term foreign government official is actually very, you know, broadly defined, especially outside the United States. The other, the concept is bribes can be anything of value. So it's not just money. Anything of value is very broadly defined. It doesn't have to be actually paid. Even if you offer to pay or give something of value, that's actually a violation of the FCPA as well. And also from a you know company standpoint, there are so many thousands of government touch points. If you're if you're working in a global organization, you might have customers who's a government agency or a state-owned entity. There is all this you know manner of regulatory oversight, product registrations, you know licensing, permitting. If you're building a plant or some kind of facility outside the United States, you're obviously interacting with government officials under the FCPA. Mergers and acquisitions is another one. If you acquire a company, for example, you know, has operations outside the United States, that can lead to successor liability. You could be responsible for the actions of those company employees prior to the time that you actually acquired the company. So if they were bribing government officials or, you know, doing, you know, doing something improper under the FCPA, then you as a company could be responsible for it. You know, I would say those are kind of some of the issues that boards particularly need to be aware of when they're actually evaluating kind of the compliance program and making sure that, you know, the compliance program actually meets all the risks that the company's actually facing. On top of that, you have a compliance program that complies with the SCPA and the anti-corruption guidance. You've, you've worked so hard to design that program. I think another thing that 
boards just need to be mindful of the fact that the SCPA often applies or does apply to your interactions with third-party intermediaries and vendors. If you hire a vendor in a foreign country to kind of help to transact in the business that you're doing, you have to make sure that that vendor also or that third-party intermediary is complying with the SCPA. And the actions of that third party could be attributable to you. Um, and the government looks very closely at that. And that's something that might not be as intuitive because it's a separate entity, but it's important for companies and boards that may make sure they document that that third party, that vendor knows their obligations under the SCPA. And that's written into the contracts between the third party and that there's training on it. On top of all the stuff that Lynn said, that also applies also when you're dealing with the, the vendors and the third parties. Doing due diligence on those third parties, and the vast majority of the FCPA cases in recent years have not been kind of necessarily the actions of the employees of the company, but the actions of third parties that they engage to act on behalf of the company. So that's a huge risk area, as Joe as Joe pointed out. I want to say it's a 91% of the FCPA cases brought in the last 20 years. At least some portion of the bribes were paid by third parties. So outside of the CFO and the audit committee. The typical executive or board member, they may not fully appreciate the important role that internal audit plays in the compliance program. In fact, one of the hallmarks of an effective compliance program is continuous improvement, periodic testing and review, which is kind of the internal audit mission statement, you know, and it describes internal audit to a T. What steps should the audit committee take to understand how well internal audit is enmeshed with the compliance program? You know, I, I think the role of internal audit is incredibly important. I think the Department of Justice believes that as well. They and I have done a, a number of programs for clients where I've actually stressed the importance of a robust internal audit compliance function. And, and I think the board needs to really be aware of what is internal audit doing in terms of monitoring for compliance. Is it sufficiently resourced internal audit, right? And does it have experienced kind of internal auditors that are actually able to really kind of ensure that the compliance program is working as it's supposed to be. It's really interesting in terms of looking at internal audit about what, what kind of audits are they doing? Are they doing proactive audits? In other words, are they just reacting when issues come up or are they actually proactively going out there and making sure that the company employees are actually following the compliance policies of the company? Lots of times internal audit identifies a problem and then the issue never gets resolved. So the board needs to be involved in terms of making sure that internal audit issues that are identified are actually being resolved promptly and appropriately. I mean, you see, for example, in the Walmart case that came up not too long ago, where Walmart actually entered into the non-prosecution agreement, but the government focused on the fact that there were internal audit reports that had been identifying these issues for years and years, and yet nothing changed as a result of that. So I think the board needs to be aware of kind of what is internal audit doing and what types of audits are they doing, how often are they doing them. Um, but also making sure that when internal audit identifies an issue, that those issues are actually being kind of resolved and, and are not on the book for years and years without, you know, a resolution. The concept of, I think, of internal audit independence is an important one. Are they free to actually do the job that they're responsible for doing? And I think this comes down to a culture. 
when internal audit comes and wants to speak with project level folks and to talk about whatever it is that they're looking at, do company employees feel free to speak with internal audit and tell them, you know, what's going on and what's happening? I think that's an important question that the board needs to be asking. Is the culture of the company such that people feel that they can be truthful with internal audit and, you know, answer and, and provide them with the document and give them access so that internal audit can do their job? Well, and I think, you know, the role of internal audit with compliance, I mean, if you have a compliance function and they need to be working together, you know, that's, in, that's important for them to identify kind of, you know, potential areas where they want to ensure that company employees are actually following and abiding by you know, company policy, compliance policies. So as attorneys and compliance consultants, we often hear from company executives and board members when they make these preemptive statements such as, you know, we're not Microsoft as a way of conveying that their compliance program doesn't need to mirror that of a gigantic Fortune 50 company. You know, what about the company's peers approach to compliance and regulatory history is important for board members and senior leadership to understand in terms of right-sizing their compliance program. You know, I can definitely appreciate that sentiment that, you know, not every company is a Microsoft or Apple or Google and that company's resources are not limitless when it comes to compliance. Lynn made that point early on in this talk that, you know, this is a, this is a cost function and, you know, it's not the revenue center of the company. So resources, there's a finite number amount of resources. But I do think that, you know, a comparison to your peer group, your similarly situated competitors is an important exercise that companies and boards need to kind of think through. Compliance officers kind of keeping apprised of cases or settlements involving their peer group where there's been an identified compliance deficiency, you know, that could be a wake up call. That could be an opportunity for reflection to say, okay, you know, they, our peer, our competitor just got entangled and they settled on this compliance related issue that forces the company to do a self-evaluation and do we need better data analytics? Do we need better training? Do we need better systems where compliance issues can be appropriately escalated? That kind of thing. So, you know, compliance is not in a vacuum. So I do think companies need to be thinking about their resources vis-a-vis their peers and their competitors. You know, what they have is, is defendable. And there's no question that, you know, having been on the other side, right, as a prosecutor for many years, you know, supervising FCPA cases, that is the question that, you know, DOJ or the SEC will ask. You know, they will compare you to other similarly situated companies and you just have to justify it. No compliance program is the same. I mean, companies that you just have to be able to justify that your compliance program actually meets the risks that your company's facing. So long as you have, you can argue to the government if you ever were sitting across the table from them that your program met the needs of the risks that you're that you were facing in good faith. You guys both make some great points. So the evaluation of corporate compliance programs guidance encourages an assessment of whether the company's complaint handling process includes things like proactive measures to create a workplace atmosphere without fear of retaliation, appropriate processes for the submission of complaints, and processes to protect whistleblowers. The document also advocates for the assessment of the company's processes to perform investigations, timely completion of thorough investigations, appropriate follow-up, and discipline. So how much detail should the board and the leadership team receive about investigations and the outcomes, and how should briefings of the board be documented other than in board minutes, because board minutes are kind of notoriously high level. 
I mean, obviously, the board can't be apprised of all compliance failures, depending on how large your company is. A lot of companies, I think, have a tiered approaches to compliance. They rate the seriousness of alleged violations, and they have you know, a different procedure depending on the seriousness of the violation. So not every compliance failure warrants board or even management review. But certainly, you know, allegations of FCPA violations or a concern, there, there was an expectation um, that management and the board would take those seriously and, and, and that the board would be apprised of those kind of serious allegations. And obviously, serious allegations of compliance failures, you know, it may not be the full board, even in that instance, it may be the audit committee who's ever responsible for it. But clearly, I think the board needs to be apprised of those and then needs to be on top of of what is being done in terms of investigating them and resolving them in some way. And you make a really good point, you know, Scott, about this, this issue of documentation. It's an interesting one, right? Oftentimes, there is a bit of a tension there, right? On the one hand, you know, if there is an investigation later on, documenting it too much could put evidence in the hands of prosecutors because you're laying it out in the minutes. But at the same time, if you are under investigation later on, you do want to document that it was raised by the board, it was addressed by the board, actions were taken. So the real question is, you know, how much do you put in your board minutes? Certainly, I think you should document the fact that issues were addressed in these various board meetings. It's a question of how much detail. You know, from a board member's perspective, however, right, you want to be able to defend yourself later on to say, well, I was you know, told about these issues, but this is what I was told, and this is what we did. There is sometimes a tension, and there's also a, a difference of viewpoint about how much really should be in, in, in the minutes you know, during these various sessions. Sometimes given the lag of time between actions that were taken by company to address compliance deficiencies and then a government investigation a few years later on the same issue, on the issue of documentation, you want to have companies want to make sure to the extent that things are documented, they know where that documentation exists. I know I, I've talked to Lynn about this a lot, you know, it's best practices for advising our clients and just making sure there's a record of what has been done so that it's an easily accessible when dealing with um, regulators down the road in terms of saying we took action, we remediated the practice point I wanted to highlight. There is definitely, a, I think, a viewpoint of, with, with in-house lawyers also about, you know, how much information you put in your minutes, how much uh, documentation should there be. I mean, obviously, those can cut the other way sometimes in terms of uh, a company's response with DOJ and the SEC or with shareholder litigation. So it is important, I think, at least to have that on the agenda item, the board minutes later on, two years down the road, to be able to say that this was an issue that um, the company took seriously and acted upon. Thank you both on that. So companies seem to be of two minds when it comes to internal communications about misconduct. Some are loath to discuss them at all, while others use them as an opportunity to reinforce compliance teachings. Uh, The evaluation of corporate compliance programs guidance encourages communications about misconduct and considers it a part of the program hallmark training and communications. So if a company's leadership team is uncomfortable talking openly about misconduct, What's the counter argument that should be employed encouraging them to revisit this topic? This question makes me laugh. Reminds me of the two sides of my family. I've got one side, it's like more reserved. They want to sweep everything under the rug, not talk about problems. And then I got the other side of my family that want to air out all your dirty laundry, air out your grievances and talk it through at, at no end. I think both sides would argue that their approach is better. I mean, in all seriousness, I think when an issue arises, this could be a teaching moment that 
could be important for companies. A real-world situation involving a current former employee entangled in misconduct, you know, gives a company an opportunity to reset and apply lessons learned. And then, you know, a real-world problem can give life to otherwise kind of theoretical training programs that might just not miss the mark a little bit. Training in the abstract is less effective than like application of a practical application of a real life example of a compliance mishap. And, you know, I think companies that can show that they've acknowledged misconduct and are striving to get to a place where that misconduct doesn't occur again are going to be well positioned down the road with prosecutors and regulators that they can show that they took affirmative action and to avoid repeat, you know, mistakes. So, you know, that short term discomfort of a company and executive not wanting to necessarily acknowledge a a compliance failure or deficiency, that short-term discomfort might be outweighed by that, the long-term benefit of making it a teaching moment. The concern would be, right, if you're acknowledging a compliance failure, is it somehow going to be used against you by a prosecutor, litigant somehow? I think the issue, it'll depend on kind of how the issues come up. You know, is it already a public compliance failure? If it's public already and an issue that's kind of under investigation, you know, obviously that's something that you can clearly use as a teaching moment, right? And you, and you should. I agree. You know, I'm a big advocate of kind of sharing those types of stories. And you know, some of the companies that have done it well, it ends up being the most popular internal communication because it's yes. sort of like very relatable, true crime stories that are occurring, you know, with, within their organization. I don't know if they still call it this internally, but Microsoft has a particularly popular newsletter that, they, you know, they've decided to kind of err on the side of transparency in this area. But the name of their newsletter, at least it used to be, I don't know if it still is, it's called What Were They Thinking? Which stories of people that just well, obviously were not thinking. That brings up a great point. When I was in-house and I did training on, you know, FCPA, even as a defense counsel, companies in terms of their compliance program and their training materials, I think it's really important to give these real world examples, make it relatable to your actual business, give real world concrete examples of how these issues can come up, because that's the way your employees are going to learn, right? That's the way that you reinforce your compliance policies by actually giving examples that come up in the regular course of your business, you know, not just general don't bribe, but how could this issue of of the FCPA come up in your in your regular business and give concrete examples of, you know, circumstances where issues could come up. I couldn't agree more. You know, scenarios-based training. You know, people in sitting in a training class are just looking for some reason to disengage, right? I want to kind of, you know, return my attention to my smartphone. But if you open with, you know, a story that is very relevant to the organization and even the composition of the people in the training, you know, the roles that they play within the organization, they are hard-pressed to disengage because they can't get past that. This is very relevant to the work that I do here. And I actually need to be listening to this because it could come up. And that's to Joe's point about using examples, real-life examples or, or compliance failures that are actually public already or that actually took place in your own company. It's actually that much more effective if actually it's a real-life scenario that actually occurred that either got the company in trouble or got an employee in trouble or, you know, fired, or it's, it's, it's that much more kind of effective in terms of, a, you know, a training opportunity. Or maybe about your competitor. Or even about your competitor. And that's why from a compliance standpoint, if you're a compliance officer, being aware of kind of the various cases that are being brought with your competitors is important to know because you can learn from them. You can incorporate those 
findings into your, you know, training. So the original evaluation of corporate compliance programs publication in 2017, it made reference to a term operationalizing compliance. In more recent versions of that guidance, the wording has kind of given way to the broader question of does the corporation's compliance program work in practice, which is kind of another way of saying the same thing. What are some concrete steps that boards and senior leadership should be taking to determine if their program exists only on paper or it's been embedded into the control environment and organizational culture? So I, th I think one way to look at this question, you know, thinking about what is it, what are regulators and what are prosecutors evaluating to determine whether a compliance program is working in practice. And in the June 2020 guidance that was released by DOJ, reading through that, you know, they highlight, you know, one of the things that they assess is whether there is evidence that the compliance programs can evolve over time to address existing and changing compliance risks. So, you know, I think a way to look at it is how, how nimble is your compliance program? Regulations are ever evolving in all sorts of industries. And a compliance program that, you know, works in practice is one that proves that it's adaptable as the circumstances warrant. Another factor I think is that DOJ considers is a company's, you know, ability to ferret out the root cause, you know, of, of a compliance problem. So if a compliance program that works practically is one where a company is able to kind of understand why the misconduct occurred and then, you know, what degree of remediation will be then needed to prevent it from happening in future. So, I mean, I think these are kind of just practical tips that you can just employ based on the guidance of that regulator, the things that regulators and prosecutors would be looking at down the road if a problem arises. Yeah, and, and to Joe's point, I mean, monitoring of the compliance program is, is really important. And it's the way that the, the board and senior leadership can ensure that it's not just on paper, that it actually is effectively doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is to be, you know, making sure that nobody in the organization is, you know, violating any, any law or doing anything to put the company at risk. So monitoring, you know, and that's again through internal audit, that's through the compliance organization. For them to assess whether there is compliance on the part of the employees with the various compliance you know, policies like gifts and entertainment, for example, is a big issue, right? Where I think companies need to make sure that their policies are being abided by. You can't just have a policy and say, these are the limits. You know, we don't want you kind of taking out government officials or you know, paying for government officials to travel if you're not actually looking to make sure that those policies are actually being, you know, followed. So I think monitoring in an effective way, risk-based way, is a certainly a concrete way that boards and senior senior leadership leadership can can actually make sure that the compliance policies are part of the organizational culture. Well, thank you guys. This has been a, a really informative discussion where I think we've all successfully disabused anyone of the notion of being on the wisdom of being on a board. Although I, I keep trying to get convinced folks that they should hire people like, you know, me on the board, you know, but there's always a reluctance, you know, to, to have that former prosecutor, you know, now defense lawyer to be on a board, but I would do it. And I think they should have more people with that experience, you know, on, on boards around the country, because I think, you know, having that perspective is really important. So 
I'm not trying to discourage anyone from being on a board. But I think the point is you need to go into that role with your eyes wide open. Well, this has been great. Thank you guys both so much for, for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Scott. Sure. That was Lynn Niels and Joe Perry of Baker Bots. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest that you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. 